Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. It's a winter wonderland out there. It is. It is. Good morning <laughs> after the snowy weekend, Wendy. Good morning. And isn't it beautiful? The sun's even out today. Yeah. it's the, so We have a nice clear view of all that snow that fell. The winter storm has now passed, but winter is uh, after a very, very long summer. Like winter's here now. Yeah. And I'm glad because everybody started putting up their Christmas lights and they look so much cooler with the snow on them. It does make it more cheerful does make yes. it much more cheerful. And anyway, we hope everybody out there is having a happy holiday season, no matter where you are. If you're not in a place with snow, then, uh, well, you're lucky. Yeah, especially if it's warm. Because the rest of us have to shovel our cars out today. So make sure that you enjoy and appreciate that every day, because we wish we were there. Indeed. But you know, I would like to make a wish about something else today, Wendy. You would? What's that, Mike? Yep. I would like to wish our new Patreon the best holiday season in history. Yes! That's right. Yes, we have another community member. So excited to welcome Stacy. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Stacy is our brand new patron on Patreon, and that means that she's helping out with the production and the creation of this podcast and the songs and everything we do every week. And so Stacy, uh, might I say on behalf of the See You on the Other Side team, we love you. We love you. Thank you so much. And welcome. And we'll be starting up some hangouts where Very soon. the community will all be we'll be hanging together. So yeah. maybe we can have a holiday hangout, some hot cocoa and cookies. And that sounds nice. Maybe some Christmas wine. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's right. So welcome, Stacy, the Patreon community. And of course, if you have any topic ideas, just send them to us. You can always tweet us. I'm at Sunspot Mike. Wendy's at Sunspot Wendy. And the podcast is on Other Side Talk. And you can find yes. us there. That's right. So that's the exciting news this week. And I tell you, in other excitement, Wendy, I really enjoyed the interview with our guest today. Yeah, you were pretty pumped about it. I was, you know, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I always love talking to somebody from the British Isles. So that's always oh, yes. fun. The accents are. And I love fun. those episodes, too. It's like, oh, how charming. So fun to listen to. Uh, so number one, that's fun. Uh, number two, it's a topic that in 120 episodes we have not covered yet, and that's poltergeists. This is true. We've, of course, touched on it in several episodes. Yeah, we've brushed up against it. But we've never gone really thorough into the topic. Right. We haven't had that full-on contact sport with poltergeists, and this week we take them on. <laughs> so that's, I was really excited about that, to have a poltergeist expert. So not just our own research, but somebody who actually wrote a book on Poltergeist. Amazing. And I really love that he brought some new perspectives that I didn't thought of. So Wendy, when you think of a Poltergeist, what do you think of? Objects flying around the room, um, tortured young teenage girls. <laughs> right. So when we think of uh, from our context, the idea of a Poltergeist to me is always that it's going to be a, a, a teenager who's going through some, the, you know, the, the puberty change and it has all this cra crazy energy that makes things fly around the room, that it alters right. the environment. And that's our context because that's kind of um, our generation. That's how we were led to believe a poltergeist was. Well, we definitely had, you know, the pop culture to... <laughs> 
encourage that interpretation. <laughs> right. The movie Poltergeist. You know, what's funny about the movie is that it has nothing to do with a poltergeist phenomenon. Like that house in that movie, like it's, it's spirit phenomenon. It's, it's electronic stuff. Uh, it's not just a poltergeist moving something around. It's like a clown sexually assaulting it. You know, it's oh, it's terrifying. Gosh. And so the movie poltergeist, they just picked it because it was a badass word, I think. Okay. Right? And it is a scary sounding word. I'll, it is. I'll Especially when I say it. I say it like poltergeist. It's very scary. <laughs> My gosh, that's so scary. Don't say that again, Arnold. Please. I won't. I won't. I promise. I won't, say, I won't say the word poltergeist. Ah, I said it again. <laughs> ah, it's my brain. Okay. So the thing Out is, of control. poltergeist is a German word for noisy ghost. Yeah? Yeah. It's German's noisy yeah. ghost. It's ghost that makes okay. sounds in your bedroom. It's terrifying. Well, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's, well, I guess I'm thinking more of objects being thrown, making the sounds. But uh, we talk about it in the interview, too, the, the rapping, that... The knocking and stuff okay. like that that people hear. Mm-hmm. So poltergeist phenomenon, when we think about stuff getting thrown around, weird sounds, chandeliers being shaken. And to me, it was always like, well, of course, the explanation is that it's psychokinesis and people are doing it with their minds. Yeah. But there's much more to it than that. And Jeffrey Holder oh, really gosh. gets into it. And he reopened my mind to the idea of different explanations for poltergeist. That's incredible. I cannot wait to hear this interview. We have to go to it right now. Okay, Please. don't stop waiting. What are you waiting for? Do it. Fordian author Jeff Holder has written extensively on the supernatural history of Scotland. He has 36 nonfiction books published under his own name. He is also an accomplished screenwriter and ghostwriter in every sense of the word. Today, we'll be focusing on his poltergeist research, although we'd also like to talk a little bit about Stone Circles. Jeff's book, Poltergeist Over Scotland examines 134 Scottish poltergeist cases from the 1600s to 2012 and finds surprising patterns in the reports. Joining us today is Alison Jorland from Milwaukee Ghosts and from the French countryside, Jeffrey Holder. Jeff, how are you doing? How are you doing? I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Jeff, we gave people a little background on your uh, being a paranormal author and a screenwriter, but let's get a little background on you. So, you're joining us today from the French countryside, but where are you from originally? I'm from Wales in the UK, um, and I lived in Scotland for many, many years, and now I'm residing in France. Okay, so you're a friend from across the pond, and uh, growing up, what got you interested in, in this kind of stuff in the first place? Because deciding to become a paranormal author requires a, a certain bit of I don't know, fortitude, intestinal fortitude, I'd rather say. So uh, like what inspired you to make the jump? Well, at the age of seven at Christmas, I was given a book on dinosaurs. And as every kid knows, dinosaurs are the coolest things on the planet. <laughs> yes, they However, are. They're not quite as cool as dragons, which is the next thing that came along. Because dragons, you know, they can fly, they can breathe fire, and they can talk. And so being becoming interested in dinosaurs and dragons, that was the window of opportunity for, for me to get into fantasy and mythology and folklore and legends, and then horror and supernatural and sci-fi literature. And basically, that was I was that child. I was that child in the library, devouring every supernatural and fantasy uh, book that I could possibly get my hands on. And now, what's even better than that, as an adult, I get to write about that stuff. Right. And that's, and that's awesome. And that's what we want to talk about. Some of all the, the, the historical re- research you've done uh, over the years is pretty, 
pretty exceptional. Pretty and, extensive, yeah. And Allison, I know that you, as a historical researcher yourself, are pretty <laughs> excited to ask him some of the questions, especially when we're discussing something we haven't discussed in the show before, and that is the concept of the poltergeist. Yes, I'm a total fangirl and so happy to talk to you. So, Jeff, why don't we just start with what is a poltergeist? I mean, what distinguishes it from like the garden variety haunting? Well, the absolute typical, uh, even stereotyped poltergeist case is, is, is a physical one. So what you have typically are noises or the movement of objects. You know, uh, there are poltergeist cases are very diverse. You do sometimes find manipulation of things such as fire, smoke, water, smells, and that sort of thing. But the classic, the stereotyped poltergeist case is strange noises without obvious cause and movement of objects without obvious cause. And that distinguishes them from the typical haunting, which tends to be much more focused on apparitions. However, there's also, a, there's also a, 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 an overlap. About 15% of hauntings create, uh, contain um, some kind of poltergeist activity. And about the same degree of poltergeist cases include apparitions in, 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 the, in the roll call of phenomena. So it's a spectrum between um, the classic apparitional haunting and the classic moving a noisy, noisy poltergeist case, but they do overlap to an extent. And so you've researched at least 134 cases in Scotland, but there's other cases that I know you know about as well. So um, how did you decide that, that you wanted to focus you know, that much time and dedication to poltergeist cases? Well, um, because poltergeist cases, apart from the, the, the small number that are genuinely hoaxed, Poltergeist cases give the indication that they might actually have genuine phenomena that can be recorded and analyzed. And whereas most apparitional hauntings tend to be people have heard or seen something and the, the evidence is ambiguous at best, poltergeist cases seem to give you something that you can get your teeth into. You know, because we have, we have recordings, we have uh, multiple witnesses, we have the items that, that were, were moved around. We have very, very, very detailed um, uh, descriptions dating back hundreds of years, which are consistent all the way through. So I thought, well, you know what, Paltz, Paltz, we, we call them Paltz, you know. All right, Paltz, we get it. shorthand, like you do. Uh, I thought <laughs> Paltz, they may actually be real, because I'm a bit of a skeptic in, in, in other areas, and it may be something that I can sort of, you know, you can really dig your, your, dig your teeth into, and it, it's they're just also big thing is they are weird. You know, poltergeist cases start for no reason whatsoever, contain phenomena that have no rhyme, no reason, and stop for no reason whatsoever. And they contain stuff that is just bizarre, bonkers, down to the point where you think it's almost like a theatrical spectacle, or maybe if it's really bad, a form of domestic terrorism. You know, they, they really are weirder than most paranormal cases. And, you know, that's what attracted me. Does that speak to the authenticity of the cases to you? Like, you know, you know if it's totally nonsensical, you're, you're like, maybe it's not a hoax because who would make that up? Well, it, I think authenticity is, is, it has a, a two levels to it. One, there's the, there's the authentic nature of the phenomena, which, which, which as I said, we can, uh, things have been recorded. Um, there's also, we tend to impose our own values, our own uh, need for narrative on 
the supernatural or the supernatural mm -hmm. phenomena. Mm -hmm. So, for example, people encounter ghosts and they turn that into ghost stories. You know, the ghost is here because it needs to regulate something that wasn't regulated during its life. The ghost is here for revenge. The ghost is here to point out the treasure. The, point, the ghost is here for a reason. That's narrative. But most, you know, um, existence is not uh, a, a straightforward narrative. It's chaotic. It doesn't really make much sense. We, our own values, our own human values, are irrelevant to the rest of the universe. And the way the poltergeists seem to act, to act without rhyme or reason, that makes me think that maybe they are, you know, one of the universe's little hiccups that we can actually yeah. sort of pay attention to. So it's, it's not, um, you know, it doesn't have that artifice that you see in, in apparitional hauntings necessarily. Mm. It, it seems more like a natural phenomena. Well, it, I don't want a natural phenomenon, but it seems something that it, it is happening or, or has happened in, in many cases. And it has no obvious cause, but also, also or no obvious purpose. And I, that kind of ups the ante on the weirdness and uh, that, that sort of random nature of it. And, uh, and because of that, I'm thinking, you know, there must be something really bizarre going on here because the amount of energy that a typical poltergeist expends, throwing things around, dissolving glass into sand, you know, bringing up feces from the, from the, the toilet, doing, you know, That's nice. creating bad smells, making meat rot, setting things on fire. The amount of energy is huge. What's it doing there? Why is it doing that? I have actually a kind of, a theory is too strong a word, a suggestion that poltergeists, okay. if they, you know, uh, if there is some sort of external entity or um, uh, that, that, that's powering them, that they're kind of like the really uh, badly behaved neighborhood teenage boys of the supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. just want to make your life hell. Why? Because <laughs> they can. Yeah, you know, because they're just, you know, badly behaved, badly brought up um, idiots. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, like, I just like the idea that poltergeists are just, there's a great Scottish term called numpties, uh, you know, which is like, you know, ill-educated, badly behaved people. I just like the idea of poltergeists are numpties. Yeah, like supernatural numpties, right? Like supernatural <laughs> chavs, I think, or what they call yes, it? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> So, Jeff, I think there's a couple of things that I wanted to kind of pull out from that. Number one is we're going to come back to the poltergeist as a quote unquote adolescent in a couple of different places, I think. We'll return to that idea. And I like that you talked about the numpties there and the, and the badly behaved tough guys of the neighborhood. Um, but number two, as I'm looking over your shoulder, I see you have a 40 in times with Lovecraft on the front. And... You know, one of the great themes. That's great radio, by the way. That's great radio. <laughs> <laughs> right. But what I'm, but I'm. We all the, love FT. Our listeners know. What, what makes me think about that, though, is we're talking about this indifferent universe that we are trying to impose our idea of narrative and purpose on. And there was nothing more Lovecraftian than the idea that the universe exists, things happen, and the fact that there is no possible way that we can understand it or impose our narrative on it is what will eventually drive us mad. <laughs> and, <clears throat> I'm ready so, to go so cuckoo you, for Kofikovs. Both as, both as individuals and as a species, human beings are obsessed with the ego. 
You know, we are the center of the universe. Each one of us is the center of the universe. Our species is the center of the universe. And so therefore, anything that happens in the universe must be can only be important if it means something to us. Mm-hmm. But I have the feeling that a great deal of things that take place in the paranormal world, if they're real, don't really care that. <laughs> right, the great, the great old ones aren't worried about us. Yeah, that's right, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and speaking of that idea, though, of us forcing a narrative on some kind of natural phenomenon or supernatural phenomenon, Jeff, we want to talk a little bit about some of the different interpretations of poltergeists over the years. Well, before we do that, maybe we should get into the term itself. And, you know, because I know, Jeff, you've you've gone all the way back to the 1600s with this, but it would be cool to to see, well, how far does it go back? You know, these recorded poltergeist cases that, that, that you've seen. Okay, the uh, oldest one I've managed to find is from the 5th century AD in the south of France. And this was a typical poltergeist in that it was throwing stones at priests um, and and, um, making bad smells and uh, making their life hell, beating them with sticks and throwing stones at uh, at, uh, members of the early church. Because they were members of the early church, they obviously thought it was a demon. Yeah, you know, that was the that was the evident imp- uh, interpretation. It must be demons right, right. because it was attacking Christians, um, and that interpretation as poltergeists demons uh, was probably the overwhelming interpretation right up until the early 18th century. I would say most most cases people ascribe them to demons, and in in some rural parts of the world, they they, they still do. And when did the word first come into use? The word poltergeist first appears in a German work in 1638, but it was popularized about two decades later by none other than Martin Luther, one of the great figures of um, the, the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, right, right. Luther encountered poltergeists on several occasions, um, and you can find them, you find all these references in the books by him and the books about him. Uh, and uh, he used the word poltergeist and because Luther was so well known because his works were so widely read the, that word sort of spread um, into sort of common usage in German. It makes it into English in uh, the 1830s when a, a book published by a, uh, a British paranormal investigator who was unusually for the time female Yay! Uh, Alright! That's fun. She, she uh, <laughs> Had <laughs> uh, read a lot of the uh, the, the German works and uh, imported the word poltergeist into English for the first for the first time. And that was Catherine Crow, right? The the Night Side of Nature. The Night Side of Nature by Catherine Crow, who was English but living in Edinburgh at the time, and her book largely consists of upper middle class anecdotes and gossip told to her by her acquaintances in the legal world and in the other professional worlds. And um, she put that all together into a book, which is still excellent reading. I would thoroughly recommend it uh, to, to this to this day. And she was very unusual in that she was female at, you know, at, at that time and place. I think it's extraordinary. And you can download it for free. So everybody should go ahead and, and download it. Because I think there's a lot more women in the paranormal than have been given credit. Yes, I think so. But, uh, and uh, it takes a while to sort of, um, dig them out. Uh, you know, they're not. They're not. They're not given the star status uh, of their male um, um, compatriots. 
Well, speaking of, you just talked about an English woman living in, in Scotland. And, you know, your book, Poltergeist Over Scotland, is uh, a spiritual, uh, pun intended, sequel to, I mean, Harry Price's 1945 book, Poltergeist Over England. So when you decided to go into and, and look into the Scottish poltergeist cases, you know, what was kind of the inspiration to say like, okay, well, there's, there hasn't been like a definitive UK kind of poltergeist book done for 57 years. Uh, what, what kind of new perspective do you think you could bring to it when you, when you jumped in with Poltergeist over Scotland? Well, firstly, I was living in Scotland at the time, so I could do a lot of on the, on the ground research in libraries, archives, and, 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 and locations. Uh, secondly, uh, no one had ever gone right to the earliest cases and just listed them and gone through them chronologically just to see how uh, poltergeist cases changed over the centuries. Just to give you one example, 17th century Scottish poltergeists were uh, voluble. Many of them spoke at, at great length, went into great mm -hmm. arguments, usually about religion uh, with the people that they were tormented. Modern poltergeists don't talk, although they do communicate via mobile phones or, or telephones that have been cut <laughs> off or anything like that, or even letters arranged on wall, you know, children's letters arranged on walls or by writing. Oh. But they don't talk, whereas, you know, three, four hundred years ago, they were, they, you couldn't shut them up. You know, so something, yeah, and, something and, has and changed. The, you know? Those poltergeist cases are in the States, too, like the Bell Witch. Yes. Uh, she was very talkative as well about scripture or all things. Right, it's always about and, scripture, uh, yeah. And uh, the, Jeff the Talking Mongoose, right, could be, yes, maybe that, be uh, yeah. considered a, a poltergeist from the Isle of Man. I'm not sure. Yeah, right? and which is uh, off the northwestern coast of England. Wait, what's can we can we go real quick into Jeff the Talking <laughs> Mongoose? I I'm mean, sorry, I... let me just be the voice of the layman here. It's actually, I think it's Geff the Talking Mongoose. It's, it's a very complicated case. <laughs> oh, that, that's a, right. That's in right. In a remote um, farmhouse on the Isle of Man, which is not the most populated part of the world, um, and, and and the inhabitants and a number of visitors. Uh, encountered um, a something um, which might have been a ghost, might have been a poltergeist, might have been a hoax, but it claimed to be a, uh, a talk. It claimed to be a mongoose. Nobody ever saw this mongoose, but it claimed to be a mongoose <laughs> called Geff, and it was quite uh, articulate. Quite articulate for a mongoose. <laughs> right. Well, yes, yes. yes. Um, and it's, it's one of those great... It's one of those classic cases that's never resolved. You know, it might be a hoax or it might be not a hoax. But anyway, uh, it, but it also might have been a poltergeist as well, because when poltergeists do speak, I don't think they're very trustworthy. You know, I'd, I'd trust a talking poltergeist about as far as I can throw a piano. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and you know, that's funny. You talk about the... Um Number one, I just think that's the you know the dumbing down of society that they used to talk in the 17th century, and today it's just children's letters. I mean, we we can see that with the you know <laughs> compare Paradise Lost to the Teletubbies, and then that's where we're going. Um, <laughs> Great, but also the idea that you can't trust it, something's talking to you. That kind of gets into some of the explanations of poltergeist a little bit that people might have had at the time. Like you talk about the early Christian, I mean, Christian missionaries. I mean, they're seeing demons around every corner because they're trapped in a, a pagan world that they felt like was against them. But when you're coming up to like the 17th century and stuff, they have a different interpretation for poltergeist. And it seems that our friends in uh, the world of the fae, the fairies was an explanation for. Can we go into one of those cases? 
Yes, of course. Um, this is something you find across uh, the British Isles and across uh, both Northern and Southern Europe. The notion that the generic term of the fairies is to say a non-human um, entities that live alongside us, often in a domestic context, um, uh, that, the, that these were often the causal agents in what we now call poltergeist uh, events. And so that the, the idea is that these... Uh, uh, let me step back for a moment. If I have said the word fairies and what pops into your head is Tinkerbell, about three inches <laughs> high with cute wings and that sort of thing, yeah, forget that completely. That is an invention of the Victorian nursery. That is a 19th century defanging of the original stories about fairies. If you go back to all the early stories, starting they're starting to be written down about the 16th century, um, the fairies are terrifying. People would go out of their way not to meet a fairy. It wasn't. This wasn't cute folklore. This wasn't something stories told around the fire. People genuinely believed in these fairies and similar beings, and they genuinely feared them. And if you um, annoyed them in some way, they could become so uh, mercurial, so vicious that their actions we would now interpret as poltergeist uh, activity. And in the uh, 17th, in the 17th century in Germany, there are at least half a dozen uh, recorded cases of the household spirit called the kobold uh, going, being insulted in some way. And normally the kobold would, you know, look after the, 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 the food and drink in the cellar, and it would be a sort of a, a benign spirit. But if, people, if the kobolds were insulted or they got into an argument, then they could even burn the house down. And we have recordings of someone, a, a local mayor Right now, you know, a recorded document, a local mayor writing to the regional councillor saying, uh, "Yeah, the cobbles burnt this guy's house down, but well, we've he's made it a real he's 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 kind of rapport with the cobbles now, so he's rebuilding his house and all is going to be fine." So <laughs> now you can laugh at that and say, "Well, that's from a, an earlier age, you know, when when people generally believed in these things." But there's a case from England in uh, the 1970s. Extraordinary case where a family moved into a house and they were told by the previous occupants that don't be surprised if you find little jobs have been done for you. You know that the you know the the apples will have been gathered in or the the, the washing up will be put away. And, and you know and, and the, the, the new occupants are what are these people talking about? They're, they're just crazy. <laughs> right, that's just, crazy. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, and but then they found exactly exactly that happening. That small jobs would be done. And the humans in the house hadn't done them. Um, and unfortunately, this got a bit wearing for the individuals. And uh, the, 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 the woman in, in, in the household actually had a, a verbal outburst against these invisible, we call them fairies, for the for sake of an alternative word. And she, she, she had a go at them verbally. And that, within, within minutes a full-on poltergeist attack took place. Some people just don't know how to appreciate a good thing when they've got it. Food was immediately spoiled. Things were fl flying around the place. Um, stuff came up from the toilet. Um, they were attacked by their own bedclothes. You know, and and they, it was so <laughs> terrifying that they moved out and never moved back in. 
Well, being attacked by your own pajamas, that would be a thing where I would be terrified of, you know, when you're afraid of something that should be fleecy and comfy. comfy. <laughs> yes. But that's great, though. I mean, the idea that, and we go back to the kobold, and any of you Dungeons & Dragons players out there, you're obviously going to be familiar with the kobold because when you're like a first-level character, that's the first monster you fight. So know that the, um, those little creatures that made it into our fiction and D&D and everything, they have some kind of historical basis in legend. And, and that's super fun, the idea that there's this household spirit that can help you out. Or, uh, I, I mean, Iceland has that a lot, too, with their elves. And yeah, Hawaii, so I, too. Yeah, so I, the, the, uh, the, the, the belief in elves in the, uh, the very modern, technically, uh, technologically sophisticated uh, nation of Iceland, that belief level is very, very high. It's just normal to believe in elves. Um, and, you know, they don't think it, there's anything bizarre about that because the elves are real. You know, it's, <laughs> it's self-evident <laughs> that the elves are real. Therefore, why would you think that was strange to believe in them? And aren't most of those people over there atheists? Yes, that's, that's right. This, this is one of the curious things is that, is that um, the, 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 there are very few uh, Christians or, or, or other uh, uh, adherents of other religions in, in Iceland. Uh, but that's, that's 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 one thing, and the belief in elves is something entirely different. You know, elves are just it was, it was just there. You know, it was really funny. I went on a, a haunted tour in Reykjavik. It was supposed to be a ghost tour, and the guide he had a real low voice, and you know, and. Uh, uh, an Icelandic, like Nordic kind of accent. And he's constantly smoking the whole time too. So it's very European, but you know, I'm sitting there and, uh, he's like, well, most Icelanders are atheists. So we do not believe in ghosts, but we took a psychic around and, and you know, and he's, and then, so the stories just came from a psychic because there was no way that the Icelander, a regular Icelander would believe in ghosts. Oh, yeah. So they had to get the stories from a psychic and that just made me laugh. And it's like, but I just went on this bus tour yesterday and all they could talk about were the damn elves running around the countryside. Uh, so I just, that kind of cognitive dissonance is interesting. And also the idea that we had this I mean, before, uh, you know, obviously I guess we could have, uh, Amazon Alexa now, you know, that you can talk to and everything. And a thousand years ago, they had the household spirits and didn't the Romans have some kind of household God as well. Like every household had some kind of God. They tended just to be little statues they didn't, and, and a belief system, but there wasn't much in the way of interaction with these things. But once, once you get to the middle ages, you find in, uh, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, uh, the Balkans, Switzerland, France, the UK, Scandinavian countries, Germany, Russia, uh, all of them have names for this household spirit, for the fairy, whatever it is. They all have different names, but they're all effectively the same thing, which is they, uh, you can coexist with them, but just don't get them knocked because uh -huh. think bad things will happen then. You know, the, the cross-cultural nature of the phenomena is just immense because I teach at an intertribal school and among many uh, native nations, there's also stories of uh, the little people. So, you know, just when you think of the diverse cultures that, you know, had this belief, which seems eerily similar you know, across the world. You got to say, what is going on there? And um, how it even today, it, you know, affects people, like you were saying, in Iceland, 
certain uh, stones are, or, you know, big boulders are, are sacred to the fairies, right? And people will not build there or, you know, build a, a road around it just so they don't, don't enrage the fairies. That's right. Well, or elves in, in an Icelandic context. Right. That, that's yes. right. right. You, you, and that, 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 we can call it uh, folklore, you can call it a belief. Uh, but what's most interesting for me is behavior. So it's all very well sitting around telling stories, all very well, you know, going, oh, ho, ho, aren't these things uh, bizarre or uh, isn't folklore strange or isn't it, isn't it wonderful? It's when it changes behavior, when you don't go and knock over that rock because that's where the elves live. When you, if you're in Ireland, you cut off a corner of your house so it doesn't get in the way of a fairy path. It's, it's behavior that I think is it's, it's really, but when belief in the supernatural or paranormal or whatever it is, affects people's behavior so that they that in and it inconveniences them in some way they have to spend money or time or effort doing something that appeases the supernatural world that's the thing i think is really really interesting yeah i agree with that and one thing i was thinking about that as we were talking about allison you just talked about sacred stones yeah that's what we're going to get into next right and that's what i kind of wanted to bring out because we're talking about the fairies and the relationship to sacred stones and we want to just ask you a little bit about stone circles jeff like what what kind of is the because the uk is like the world's hotbed of stone circles isn't it that's right there's there's 900 stone circles in the british isles which is the world's largest concentration. And you wrote a book about it, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I wrote, oh, uh, gosh, Alison, I'm glad you said that. Because <laughs> we'd all forgotten, right? Yes. No, I, I wrote a book called 101 Things to Do with the Stone Circle, uh, which is a slightly jokey, slightly serious book with 101 chapters, each of them detailing what people have thought about stone circles or believed about stone circles or done with stone circles, stretching back from the Anglo-Saxons right through to, you know, the, um, the right, right through to the hippie period, right through to the new age period, right through to the, to the you know, modern times, just working, going through 101 things that people have thought, believed or done about stone circles, which is a great fun to write. So what is their connection to the fairies? Well, Bit of con. Everything to do with the supernatural is has to do with context. Context is everything when it comes when it comes to stories of the supernatural. And the context here is that from the late 18th century to the late 19th century, the Great Britain industrialized very very quickly, which meant that people moved from the countryside and they and went to the cities. And when that happened, that way of life was was lost almost forever. And this is this period when you have these educated middle class people like. Um, vicars and teachers and people like that taking an interest in the folklore of the country people and so you have this amazing amount uh, of detailed interviews uh, from uh, people in countryside talking about their folklore and that includes dozens and dozens of examples of them seeing the fairies often near some kind of prehistoric site. It doesn't have to be a stone circle. It could be a standing stone. It could be a tomb. It could be something, something of that nature. And time and time again, people say that they saw the little people dancing in these in the in the in these areas, or otherwise cavorting. Um, and in some cases, when people saw them, they were they were damaged by the fairies in some way because that's what fairies do because they're you know mercurial. Um, and but by the time we get to sort of the First World War. That's all gone. Nobody is seeing the fairies in, in, anymore in the countryside, and certainly no one's seeing them anymore in the, um, in the stone circles. Um, partly because 
By this point, fairies had been translated into fairy tales. That is to say, stories for children. So before, it, they were things that adults told each other because fairies were, frankly, frightening. And you, had, you, right. you were told right. things how to keep out of their way. Whereas in the 19th century, that changed into fairy tales, stories for children. So nowadays, nobody takes fairies seriously at all. Because I, I, I'll give you an example. You go into any social gathering and you say to people, I've seen a ghost. And, and some people will dismiss it. But other people go, oh, right, you've seen a ghost, right? Go to any social gathering and you say, I saw a UFO. People go, some people go, oh, yeah, right, you saw a UFO. But others will go, wow, yeah, wow, UFO is great. Go to any social gathering and say, I saw a fairy. What are you going to get? No one is going to go, wow, yeah, that's great. Everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, crazy person here. Because fairies are not fashionable. Ghosts and UFOs are fashionable in the supernatural world, in the paranormal world. But fairies are not. I look forward to a day when, you know, the return of the fairies comes back. Right. And we can sort of <laughs> kick our butts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing because you know you were talking about how fairies are mercurial, how they seem to uh, they, they pick little fights and they get angry and vengeful and jealous and, and all of those things, and, and that's the idea. You know, when we talk about the indifference of the universe and almost when we talk about like a poltergeist activity, like making poltergeists mad or you want to keep whatever's, you know, throwing things around your house as happy as possible. Um, fairies belong to that great tradition of having a completely different morality than we do. You know, they, they exist on a different kind of moral plane. And I think that's why it's a great example of a poltergeist explanation, you know, because because yeah. a lot of them just... You know, they do things willy-nilly, and they just don't have that same kind of morality that we do. Uh, that is a great point. I've got an example to sort of illustrate that. One of the really great things about being a writer is that people talk to you. They, they tell you things that they wouldn't tell anyone else. If you're interested in the supernatural and, and you're, you know, you can come over and, and you can demonstrate to people that you're not a crackpot, you know, people tell right. you stories. Right. So I, I interviewed someone who... Uh, had an extensive series of sightings of fairies. Uh, this was uh, somewhere in Scotland. And uh, she, both she and her partner uh, saw these things. And they weren't, um, they weren't humanoid. They were like they were made out of sticks or, or mm. bits and pieces. And they, 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 weren't, they weren't humanoid at all. And she got the sense that they were other. This is the word she kept using. They were other. They weren't like us. It was like communicating with ants or something like that. They were just like they were from a diff. And he said they had a completely different moral universe. And that what what I think part of what made the original fairies very scary. If you look at a, if you look at a lot of stories about encounters with fairies, you find that the same fairies on one day can give you a boon, and the same fairy the same, next day can make you blind or take your child, or give you a hunchback, or that sort of thing, for no reason. Because they, they exist outside our normal moral plane. You know, they, they, they're just other. And I think that's really a, a useful sort of distinction. Right, and nobody wants to hang out with the fairies, because it's like if you watch a movie, and you're like somebody's hanging out with a psychopath or something yes. like that, right? Yes. Or think about Alfred Molina's character in Boogie Nights. Like, sure, he's fun, and everybody's offering coke to everybody, but then he gets the gun out, and all of a sudden yeah. you realize he's just a guy in underwear wearing a robe who's crazy and but okay, and you don't know what set them off, and I think that's you know that's that sort of that I was really struck by by, by her insistence that they were just so they weren't just 
non-human. They were a-human. They were just from mm. a, from a completely different moral dimension, and that was makes them really scary because that means they're just indifferent to us. And they're so foreign that we can't understand them. We don't know how yeah. to communicate with them. Yeah, well, maybe that's a good uh, thing. You know, <laughs> I don't know if they, if they, if they're that. From our perspective, they might you might regard them as malevolent. But I think from their perspective, it's just that we're irrelevant. <laughs> right. That's right. a good way to do it. Yeah. You know, what I think is interesting there, though, too, is we connect that to a lot of older belief systems. The universe itself is a very, when like we talk about indifference, we are irrelevant and things like that. And, and you think about the Greek gods, like Zeus blesses you one day and then knocks up your wife and takes the kid the next day. And like all of those things <laughs> happen. Oh, those gods, you know, oh, the stories <laughs> I could tell you, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And how, uh, you know, the fairies seem to operate on that same kind of level and poltergeists seem to operate on that same kind of level. And, and you were saying before how they are the, the bad boys, the, uh, the scary hoodlums of the neighborhood. And, you know, when we talk about poltergeists as adolescents, you know, we talk about our modern interpretation and how we think of it, at least, you know, um, I remember growing up and hearing about poltergeists on TV and stuff, and it always seemed to try to connect it to some kind of psychokinesis, i.e. moving stuff with your mind, i.e. the force, um, some kind of psychokinesis uh, associated with teenagers and particularly teenage girls. When's the first time that we kind of get that perspective of the explanation of, well, it's a teenager being able to move stuff with their mind. You know, I was saying earlier about everything in the supernatural is about context. Mm -hmm. And here, here, mm -hmm. this is, this is a, another, another example of that. The idea of the, 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 the generalized idea that poltergeists are caused by individual human agents who typically are disturbed adolescent uh, young women um, is a very much a, a construct of the post-Freudian world. So from the, from the 19th century, people were looking at, all, you know, they moved away from the idea that of the de uh, demons were doing it. They moved away from the, uh, an early idea that witchcraft was doing it. Ghosts were regarded as a possibility. Fairies had fallen out of fashion. Um, maybe maybe some of the cases were hoaxes, and, 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 and but then what happens is that this new world, this new world of psychiatry starts to enter into the world of the supernatural. So previously, people who investigated it had been the um, psychical investigators, many of whom were, uh, you know, were highly educated, but effectively amateurs in various mm -hmm. um, uh, fields. What happens in the early part of the 20th century is that the professional psychiatrist and psychologist enters into the world Enters into this world, and they they change the name because it previously used to be psychical uh, 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 psychical studies or, or, or something like the Society for Psychical Research, research, and it got changed its name to parapsychology, and that is a very telling term. Psychology meaning to do with the human mind. So what you see is a shift. It's almost like a, a paradigm shift that takes place in the early 20th century in this post-Freudian space where people are looking at poltergeist activities and saying, this is connected to um, the human mind in some way. Therefore, we will use the word parapsychology because the great thing about parapsychology, it doesn't have any hint that there might be like poltergeist. The word poltergeist includes the word geist or spirit or ghost. 
a discarnate in entity. Power psychology mm -hmm. doesn't imply any discarnate entity. It's all about it's happening inside our, our, our craniums and we're externalizing it. 1938, a, a very influential book gets published which categorizes a lot of these poltergeist cases up to now and takes a very psychiatric post-Freudian approach. And that's really when uh, it sort of, it becomes embedded in, in, in our culture. And it's reinforced by a number of very well-known, very well-researched poltergeist cases from the 1950s and 1960s, all of which were researched by psychiatrists and given the interpretation that the causal agent was a disturbed teenage girl. And I think that's interesting, too, because, I mean, first of all, when we're talking about the Freudians. There's nothing more terrifying to a Freudian than the sexual awakening of a female. You know, that's, <laughs> so they're like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is this is something we can never understand. Um, <laughs> Got to do something to tire that back down. Right. She's hysterical. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, that idea that they're, they're tying this into this massive outpouring of energy that happens when uh, when someone enters puberty and this uh, the crazy hysteria, you know, quote unquote hysterical energy. So, I, I mean, I think that's that's an interesting interpretation, number one. But, you know, to tell you the truth, if somebody told me about a poltergeist and they said they thought it was fairies, I'd be like, well, you're crazy, right? Like we were just talking about, like you're at the party and you're like, well, I saw a bunch of fairies. You're like, sure you did, buddy. Um, <laughs> but if you if you said like, you know, my my younger sister, um, you know, when she turned 13, like sometimes the, you know, the, the chandelier would shake or when she'd get angry and storm off to her room, then like a couple of plates would fall off the table. I would find that completely believable. But at the same time, realistically, it's just as possible that a bunch of fairies got mad for her and, you know, and, and through the, and through it. And just as impossible, we don't have any uh, more evidence for, for either side, right? Yep. And I, I love how you put it in context, Jeff, that, that um, you know, first we started outside the head with the other, and, yeah. and now we're solidly inside the head, that no, no, it's all in your mind. And we're adding in the kind of uh, chauvinistic aspect as well, that, oh, it, it must be due to those hysterical females. Well, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, and but the, what's happened now is that what was a, 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 something that was definitely the case that a number of these well well researched cases, the causal agent did appear to be a disturbed female uh, of uh, of teenage years. So that was then taken become the default, become the new paradigm. So now when there's a poltergeist activity, people say, "Where's the disturbed teenage girl?" But if you look through the literature. A significant proportion of modern cases uh, seem to have that shape to them, uh, disturbed teenage girl, but many don't. Some of them are dealing with male teenagers. Some of them are dealing with male or female adults. Some of them are dealing with older adults. Some of them are dealing with, um, uh, they seem to have be focused on different members of a family at different times. Um, in some cases, there seems to be no focus whatsoever. So although the notion of the disturbed teenage girl is useful, the idea that it is the be and end all is just, a, it's just another dead end. It's just in a way of dismissing something. Yeah. The pattern doesn't support it. No, not, not, there's no one explanation that, that can be applied to every poltergeist case. Absolutely, absolutely not. But what you do get is I probably, in terms of numbers, you probably look at maybe a quarter to a third do seem to center on uh, a disturbed adolescent 
or, or a young woman between the ages of 11 and 25. It, it, you know, that, that's that's uh, typically the case. But that's not an explanation, you see, because no. in the other cases, there is, there, is, there is no one like that present. So there must be something else. It's, you know, it's not, it's, uh, but it's become a default where people go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's poltergeist. It'll be that, you know, uh, that teenage girl having, having her puberty problems. Uh, you know, and it, it can just be dismissed without, without further thought. And, um, you know, in 25 years' time, we'll have a completely different paradigm. You know, once we've managed to establish communication with poltergeists, you know, obviously that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, the paradigm I'm thinking that it's in 25 years time we're going to go back to is vampires. And so this is something I'd never heard before is that poltergeist activity has a relation to vampiric activity in uh, Bulgaria, is it? That's right. Um, this is uh, comes about from a book published in the 19th century by a couple of uh, um, British chaps who spent some time in eastern Bulgaria which at the time was kind of like the end of the world in terms of, in, in, if you look at, look at it in terms of civil, Western civilization. And sure. they spoke the local language quite well. And uh, they, were, they weren't actually there for, they weren't vampire hunting. They were there to um, 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 shoot uh, defenseless animals and, you know, because they were <laughs> British, they were British upper class types abroad. But, right, they were entitled to it. Yeah, that's right, they were entitled <laughs> to it. Um, but what they, they, they to their, um, what intrigued them is that their, um, their, their landlord was the son of the local vampire. And so that enabled them to sort of find out further about this. And what they discovered <laughs> was a mythology that is completely at variance with what we tend to think of as being the vampire. Now, you know, the vampire as a creature of mythology, I'm sorry, as a creature of literature, it, you know, belongs to the 1830s. And it, you know, we we all know the you know the the svelte aristocratic, blood drinking fanged you know vampire from Eastern Europe. We all know that. But what these right. chaps were were encountering was something that was completely different to that, which is that the the local belief in this very specific, very remote part of um, Eastern Bulgaria was that uh, how vampires were created were, took place in two stages. Firstly, someone would die. Usually, someone who had done something wicked, but uh, that's why they turned into a vampire. Um, and then their spirit would leave the grave, and for nine days, it would rampage around the village, throwing plates around, throwing filth at um, uh, icons of saints, um, shouting at people, banging on doors, behaving like a poltergeist, but it was invisible. So, what you have poltergeist as invisible vampire. And it would it would carry on doing this for a month, and after that it would return to the grave, and it would then come out of the grave in its adult form, which is basically the dead body coming out of the grave, wandering around the village and making a nuisance of itself by trying to crush people to death. The vampires in this particular um, part of the world did not have fangs, you know, they could not turn into bats or anything like that, and they were as far from the um, the sophisticated aristocrat as you, as you could get because they were slow, shuffling, silent, smelly peasants. And, you know, who wants to make a story about them? You know? <laughs> no, that's so, not very romantic. That's, that's, not very that's romantic just the walking dead. So, 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 yeah, exactly. So they're more like zombies than, than vampires. So you have this extraordinary um, situation where it was a largely illiterate society but these two British guys sort of recorded this little pocket of supernatural belief. 
And I, I, I once I found that, like expand, extended it further, I found uh, similar examples of belief in the invisible vampire that does uh, power, uh, pol poltergeist activity in uh, Serbia, in uh, the Greek islands and the Greek mainland. And it's all around the uh, East Europe and the Eastern, Eastern uh, Mediterranean. Is that people would be attacked by something that threw stones, or something that made noises, or something that moved things, and the local belief would be that was the invisible vampire. But that mythology has just completely vanished now. Nobody thinks about a invisible vampires or b the poltergeists are invisible vampires. But you know, hundred or two hundred years ago. People in certain parts of Europe did believe that. I find that fascinating too. And number one, when you um, talk about the aristocratic vampire, like my first thought goes to like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and interviewed the vamp or the vampire start interviewed the vampire kind of thing. My second thing immediately goes to George Hamilton and Love at First Bite, and I don't know why that's <laughs> second. Like that movie with Richard, remember Richard you're a Benjamin? Sick individual, that's why. <laughs> that's true. So I can Clearly think of like yes, yes a, a very classy aristocratic vampire, much like George Hamilton. Um, <laughs> And anyway. tan. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> and Right. He never, why is that vampire tan? He never sees the sun. Um, it's product. <laughs> it has to be the fake tan. Actually, the, my, I had a dermatologist recommend that because I never get a tan. So I'm like, how do I get a tan? And she's like, use the product. So I guess mm -hmm. that's what George Hamilton was using in the movie. But uh, to me, that's fascinating, the idea that, uh, so it's, it's a combination of a, uh, a ghost and a vampire, an evil spirit causing these things to happen. And that circles around to the adolescence as well, because that's the adolescent, the pupil stage or whatever. Of yes, that's that, right. yes they, yeah, in the book, they call them the larval stage and the adult ah. stage, yeah. just like, like insects. Yeah. Right. And, and so that, that uh, adolescent stage of being a, uh, a vampire in those particular parts of Eastern Europe um, is essentially becoming a poltergeist. Yes. So, Jeff, all the study that you've done, you know, it's, it's really been extensive. What are your conclusions? I mean, what, what do you make of all of this? Well, I can tell you my conclusions. I have very strong conclusions on poltergeists. Having written two books on, this, on the subject and studied and read about hundreds and hundreds of cases, my conclusion is this. I have no idea what they are. <laughs> That's as good as any. But you, you, you didn't say that they're all hoaxes. I mean, uh, I, I uh, go on a lot of paranormal investigations and, and uh, my friends who are paranormal investigators, uh, you know, they're very skeptical and that's why I work with them. But, you know, what really bugs me is the whole idea of the poltergeist, when they do their presentations, they're very different presentations than mine because they say, well, they've all been proved to be hoaxes. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. That's not true because that's not true. Even in my own research, you know, which is nothing compared to yours, but, uh, you know, the interesting thing is the connection between, you know, what you found and what I found, you know, here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that, you know, I have these poltergeist cases, which really match up with, you know, a lot of what you're talking about. A lot of the characteristics, uh, you know, just fall right into place. And why would that be cross-culturally if it, if it was just all fraud? Well, on the question of fraud, there have been several uh, sort of extensive uh, studies, uh, sort of overall, overarching studies of, of numerous uh, poltergeist cases. Um, and uh, I've, I've read three of them, and th they found that the 
prevalence of fraud or deliberate hoaxing was between 3% and 15% of the cases they looked at. And when I did the study for Poltergeist over Scotland, and I, I, I did a, I looked at 134 cases, my percentage was 4.5% of where hoaxing had been observed. We're definitely doing hoaxing. So hoaxing is present. Um, and so we always have to be suspicious that something, you know, something. And in the modern age, when hoaxing is now much more easy, and it can instantly be placed on on any number of digital channels. Uh, it, we have to be even more suspicious. Um, it's much it's easier to hoax things now than it used used, used to be. Um, there's something else which I this is something I've look, I've looked at a, n- a number of cases. You find this there's a um, there's like a, a curve to some poltergeist cases, and what happens is that you have the phenomena starts for no reason whatsoever. And after a certain time, typically weeks, someone turns up to investigate it. This might be a reporter, it might be a psychical investigator, it might be a you know, ghostbuster, someone like that, it might be a parapsychologist. And this creates excitement often in, in the family where the poltergeist taken, phenomenon is taking place. This creates some excitement. And what then ha- happens is that this observer, this outside observer, sees the human agent, the human focus, deliberately fake some of the phenomena. So they, they said, oh, well, it must all be faked. But the, um, the, the teenager at the, the focus of it says, yes, I did that. But the first stuff was real. It's just stopped. And because they're now getting attention, people are coming to their house, you know, they're getting, maybe they're getting reporters, that sort of thing. They want to keep that attention going, so they fake it. So there's this like this curve where you seem to have possibly genuine phenomena, which then stops. But the focus of that phenomena says, "I quite like this attention. I'll keep on doing it. I'll keep faking it." Um, and I, I've noticed that in uh, at least a dozen cases. And um, I just wondered how much of the really of the things that are marked as hoaxes started off as genuine phenomena and then degenerated into into fraud. Yeah. So that's another point. And even if we say, "Okay." You know, from the start, it was as a hoax. If if we concede that, you know, that fifteen percent, that that high estimate. I mean, that still leaves eighty five percent that well, isn't hoax. Yeah. So you can't say that. Oh, it's all hoaxes. And you know, I've come, I've come around. I've rounded the Mobius strip here, where where for a while. Um, you know, even though I've had some scant experiences myself. You know, when when you go through life, you know going to lots of investigations and then time after time, never anything happening, you know, you kind of step back a little bit and you, you, you feel uh, almost uh, personally ignored. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you feel like, okay, maybe there is nothing to it, uh, you know, forgetting everything that's happened before. But then, you, you know, you have to look at things critically, even being skeptical. As we were talking before, a lot of these explanations put forward, you know, we have no more evidence that it's that than this. Well, Jack, right? you were talking about something yesterday that I thought was really interesting. And this is the first time I'd ever heard that. And that was when people had recorded knocks. Yes. From a specific poltergeist activity. And now this is something we talk about, something you cannot hoax. So uh, tell us a little bit about the knocks recorded and why you find that compelling. And a number of poltergeist cases last for an extensive time. And this allows, in some cases, um, uh, 
researchers and investigators to turn up with recording equipment. And this has been going on since uh, 1960. Uh, uh, and so we now have recordings of poltergeist knocks or raps or taps from cases in uh, Brazil, Switzerland, France, Italy, Germany, and the UK. And in 2010, a physicist took, managed to acquire copies of all these recordings, uh, and he subjected them to acoustic analysis. And he found something very interesting, something that was, they all shared one aspect that was something very, very uh, bizarre, something absolutely compelling. If you hit a piece of wood with your knuckle, the, the, the volume is at its highest at the moment that your knuckle hits the wood, and then it decays. But these poltergeist raps didn't do that. What happened is they started quiet and got louder and then decayed. So they weren't being hit by, even if we assume there was like something invisible, they weren't being hit by something because the sound was behaving in a completely anomalous way. And all of these cases, all of these recordings behaved in exactly the same way. So whatever was making those poltergeist raps was doing something that is not only physically unlikely or even impossible, but it's actually been recorded and analyzed as being impossible. And that to me is the most compelling evidence that some poltergeist activity is genuine, it's caused by something, and if we can analyze it, we can learn about what on earth is going on with these, this weirdness. So something's really going on. Where do we go from here? Like, what can we do as historical researchers, as scientists? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, up to now, the world of the poltergeist has largely been in the hands of either uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, parapsychologists, and well-meaning amateurs, uh, people like me. Um, I think the next stage is to get, if this poltergeist activity is something that's physical, and we now have some evidence about that, so it's now time to get the physicists involved and also, you know, the... Um, people who can, uh, who can measure neuroscience. Here, here's an example. Brain scientists can look at your brain and work out which parts of your brain is working when you're being creative. So they can look at the brain of a musician and see which part is happening when that musician is creating music out of nothing. Now, if we could get someone who, who seemed to be the focus of a poltergeist activity, could we get them under a, you know, a brain scan and see which parts of their brain were might or might not be working if poltergeist activity was happening, you know? That's, you know, so, but so neuroscience is, 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 is I think, a, a fascinating uh, possibility. Uh, you know, physiology, um, uh, physics. The, the, I think what we need is some brave scientists to go beyond that sort of stigma of crack pottery and say, this is real, we don't understand it, let's investigate it using, you know, normal scientific ideology. And once again, stigma of crack pottery is my favorite term of the day. Um, that's brilliant, Jeff. And to talk about uh, a little bit, I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, we say, like, where do we go from here? Now, Jeff, where do you go from here? Now, you decided to move from writing uh, nonfiction books into the world of screenwriting. And since we discuss pop culture on this podcast all the time, like, how did you decide to make that jump? Why did you say, like, you know what, I've been working on this stuff in the real world for so long. Let's indulge in some fantasy. Why did you decide to do that? Um, well, because um, I've actually, by now, I've written 40 books, although not as number about four haven't yet, have yet to be published. They'll be out later next year. And I was kind of getting a 
it's getting a bit old, you know. I wanted to do something different, you know. It's like forty books, yeah, yeah. I wanted to move on, <laughs> right, on something right. else, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I, you know, I I love movies, and now I I I discovered, you know, I did a kind of like an analysis, and I haven't written all these books. I've got this vast corpus of material about the supernatural, about folklore, about mysteries, about beliefs that I can draw on and put them into another medium. And I thought, well, what's my favorite medium? Oh, I know, horror movies. So yeah, that's, that's, that's that sort of direct connection between the two. What do you think is the best written horror movie that you've seen? Like when you say like, you know, I'm going to work on a script here. What's your gold standard that you'd like to meet for your own script? Alien. Mm. Alien is, you read the script, the script is great. I read scripts all the time, but uh, the script is great. <laughs> the, you know, the film is great, but it, it is, it's a very spare script, and it's at the same time it's very, very, very scary. Right. It's like it's like Ten Little Indians in space. Isn't that Daniel yeah, Bannon? It, it, it's 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 the old dark house. It's the old dark house, which is a 1930s ghost story, and it's it's, it's that in space. Yeah, you know, and uh, I think that is really uh, it's a really you know it's an excellent read. It's an excellent movie, and I I think that's probably one of the uh, uh, the real gold standards. And and then in sort of in Bringing back to sort of modern terms, um, the invitation, which is I think, I think came out last year, uh, that's a really scary script. Oh, um, fantastic! I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's it's so now it's, I got to. It's 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 subtle, all the way through, and you're just going, what is going? On? So I know something bad is happening or going to happen, but I don't know what it is. And then when it does happen, it's like ah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> the invitation is ah! not the one. With- the invitation's not the one with the Fay, is it? No, no. The, the invitation okay. is, a, is a dinner party in Los Angeles. Oh, okay, okay. All right. yeah. I just wanted so, to make sure because there there was a specific, well done fairy film that came out last year. Allison, we saw it, didn't we? Yeah, you're thinking of the Hollow. The Hollow, yeah, and that, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. So, so yeah, there, but there's lots and lots of great movies out there uh, in the in the horror genre, and I I like you know I like creature features. And I like ghost stories, but I also like ones where, you know, the, the, the monster is human as well. I'm looking forward to seeing one of your scripts produced because I want to see a real historical research perspective done because I think there's nothing that makes a, a horror film more exciting than when they have really good research done, as in the, you know, the original Exorcist. You really do feel like William Peter Blatty did his work. And if you, if you watch, watch a recent film called The Witch, which is set in colonial oh, yeah. America... It's 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 so authentic, and that really that authenticity makes the the scares that much more frightening. Do you think there's a movie or a TV show that's captured the poltergeist phenomenon well? I know not the movie Poltergeist. I, but. I'm, I'm I'm not. Nothing's <laughs> coming to mind immediately. I have to I have to say, and the, I think the reason for this is that you know movies are narratives. We you know they're stories, and the poltergeist activity is is non-narrative. It's, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it starts, continues, and stops for no reason whatsoever. And what we want with our ghost stories uh, is, you know, a story. We want purpose. Why is the ghost here? Why is it doing this? You know, um, why is the demon here? You know, and poltergeist activity, that doesn't make any sense. It's kind of hard to convey that well, uh, unless you have a kind of persistent human victim all, all the time. But even so, they're, they're, you know, the audience going, well, why is that happening? You know, whereas in, in real poltergeist cases, you have no idea why it is, why it's happening. But, you know, um, 
you know, these, these things will come up. But on, on, on your point about sort of seeing seeing my my stuff, you know, um, it takes years for a script to get made into mm-hmm. into a movie, and I'm always I'm and now having spent the last two years uh, in this world. I'm now amazed that any movie gets made because there are so many obstacles <laughs> in the way. Um, and this is the point where you tell me that your uncle is a film producer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, you know, we forgot to tell you before, Jeff, that um, and, and, and it's he gives me green light authority is the other thing, too, which is amazing because the most generous man. I think it'll be perfect, though. Um, I mean, so it seems like you're the guy to give us a great representation of poltergeist activity in the world of film. And, and I can't wait to watch it. And so if people want to take a look at your books, maybe get a gander of what kind of screenwriting you're working on, where's the place that they can find you on the web best so that they can learn more about you and your work? It's my website, which is www.jeffholder.com. And Jeff is G-E-O-F-F. So it's jeffholder.com, simple as that. Okay, and if they want to buy one of your books, is it best to buy it from Amazon or can they buy it from you directly or what's the best place to buy your work? You can click on links on the website, which will take to my Amazon page, or you can go directly to Amazon. And there's, a, there's, there's, you know, there's several pages of me on, on Amazon. Just look up Jeff Holden and discover all sorts of wonders and marvels. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and we encourage you to pick up some of Jeff's books because they're fascinating and uh, a really exciting and brilliant voice in this kind of world. And we're so glad you came on. So, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Well, that certainly was fascinating. Yeah, we're going to have Jeffrey on again because he's got so many books that it's nice to be, have like an expert on call. Yeah, just incredible. Right, he's our he's our Welsh expert located in France. <laughs> so we just yes, on call so our, our international team. We'd like to thank Jeffrey for being on the show, and also to thank Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts. Yes, for hanging out, and she really did a bunch of research on Poltergeist for this particular episode. So that was great. She's really a Poltergeist expert in and of her own right. Yeah, I mean, especially with the Milwaukee stuff. Yeah, she's bringing it all together for Wisconsin. So that was a clutch for today's interview. And definitely. So one concept that Jeffrey introduced in the interview that I really hadn't thought of before was this idea that poltergeists are part of this long tradition of otherworldly beings, not just being inhuman, but being a human, as in their morality, their motivations are just, we can't comprehend them because they're just not like us whatsoever. Mm, I see. Even the worst people in the world, like serial killers and stuff like that, we think we can understand their motivations. Even the most monstrous of us, we think we can understand why they do things. But when it comes to fairies or Greek gods or anything that's otherworldly, aliens, why would they have any kind of motivations that we would understand? That's true. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So that was kind of an exciting concept. I really hadn't thought about that before. The poltergeist, if it's not a ghost and it's just something otherworldly, that we can't understand, well, that's an interesting concept. And this week's song kind of speaks to that concept. And it's called An Indifferent Universe. Who wears the twilight, walks in starfall? Who wears the cold, walking through
destroy Every human Some kind of toy Explaining power You can't understand The never knowing Will drive you mad for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Guess what time it is? It's time to thank good old Ned for being the level clock. Oh, thanks a clock. <laughs> I like that. Ned's the level of Patreon that uh, he gets a special shout out every single episode. So Ned, here is your shout out. Thank you very much for being part of our community. Thank you, Ned. And thanks to all of our community, it really does make a huge difference having your help and knowing that you're out there and enjoying what we do. Really appreciate it. And if anybody else would like to join our Patreon community, how can they do that, Mike? Just like Stacy joined this week in an That's awesome right. way. Thank you, Stacy, once Stacey. again. Uh, you can join our community at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Poltergeist, it's very scary. Just bizarre, bonkers, down to the point where you think it's like it's almost like a theatrical spectacle.